Welcome to a special edition of the BioCentury This Week podcast. Today, we are previewing the BioCentury Bay Helix East-West Biopharma Summit. It's scheduled for November 14th through 16th in Redwood City in the San Francisco Bay Area. Joining me to help set the stage for the event are Frank Ledoux, co-leader of McKinsey's Asia Life Sciences Practice, and Goliung Yu, the chairman of Bay Helix, who is also the chairman and CEO of Apolomics. BioCentury, Bay Helix, and McKinsey have had a 10-year collaboration based on our mutual interests in instigating cross-border innovation. From the BioCentury side, we're joined by BioCentury's co-founders, CEO David Flores, and Chairman Karen Bernstein. We're also joined by Editor-in-Chief Simone Fishburne and Josh Berlin, BioCentury's Head of BD. Now, this is the first time we are hosting this event, so I'd like to bring in Dave to give the event's origin story. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Why is now the time for this event? Well, I thank you for pulling us all together and that we're all around the world tonight. So um, this is good for our team to get us all together and thank you for that. I think several of us will have some points of view about why we're doing this. Uh, so I, I want to go backwards a little bit and just point out that the bedrock assumption for all of us, which is Bay Helix, McKinsey, and BioCentury, is that healthcare innovation is global. And global means that patients everywhere demand innovation. And there's not a place in the world that I've ever been that does not think that it should be providing innovation as part of its foundational addition to healthcare. All of us were, you know, we've been in Asia for quite some time and, and nine years or 10 years ago, we all agreed to create a forum in Shanghai to debate what it would take for China to grow its emerging innovation ecosystem, which started with talent. And then there's science, regulatory and legal reform. And finally, in the last few years, capital formation. And the goal was to like plot a pathway where we could see that China ultimately would make its mark globally. And when we started, many of Dave and my friends in the West were asking us why we spent so much time traveling to China and the rest of Asia. It's like, why are you going there? We said we would show them and we would show them why. So by 2019, half of the participants who joined us in Shanghai came from outside of China. So the forum quickly became a global meeting for members of the C-suite and investors to discuss collaboration and cross-border capital formation and to share insights where we were going with genomics, gene and cell therapies, and artificial intelligence and other therapeutic modalities. And then we all know what happened. Then came the pandemic and accelerating geopolitical strife. And then probably surprising to everyone in the industry that alongside came mounting regulatory uncertainty over the rules for global clinical development. A lot of that started in the U.S., but it affected everyone globally. So all of these three events really made the globalization roadmap less clear. But for, for us at Bay Helix, McKinsey, and BioCentury, we still had a first principle, which is that to maximize the value of healthcare innovation, innovators and investors and patients all required a globalization pathway. And so the question is, given the current environment, how do we do that now? How do biotechs deliver 
the benefits of their innovations to patients throughout the world and achieve the greatest ROI for investors. And that's what the East West Summit is all about. Excellent. Thanks for that, Dave and Karen. Uh, I'd like to now bring in Guo Liang. What's the importance of this event for Bay Helix? And maybe a quick word for those who might not know what Bay Helix as a group is. Yes. So uh, thanks, Jeff. You know, we are so happy for the collaboration with BioCentral with McKinsey on this event. And uh, as Dave and Karen have described, really, the event has been evolved in the last 10 years. It really brought everybody together, people who are in science, in technology, uh, in the capital market, and uh, all the C-suite. So Bay Helix was uh, founded more than 20 years ago. We gathered the key people, you know, most of them are in the C-suite, in the biotech industry, and a very close group of people. We have about 800 members. It's uh, by invitation only. But globally, we have uh, spread out, initially mainly in the U.S. Now, I think we have more members in China than uh, uh, in, in the U.S. And as you can see from the name, Bay Helix is started from the Bay Area. So I'm so happy that this year's event is taking place in the Bay Area. Uh, will probably attract more Bay Helix members to participate in person over there. And of course, you know, Shanghai as a satellite meeting venue would also bring uh, a pretty good attraction for people who are currently in China. But I want to echo what David had said. The life science or the healthcare industry really for global because we're all human. You know, it, there's really no border whether it's uh, in the United States or in China or in France, in UK, anywhere, I think that people need to work together and bring innovations to patients, to everybody, where we do need to have a very you know, unified way of conducting clinical trial, a unified way to be able to communicate you know, all the innovations so that people in different corners could be benefit. So again, you know, globalization is a key. And this event, basically, I think the name just says for it, right? East and the West uh, Biopharma Summit. I'm glad uh, we pushed for it. Biocentury really was uh, very much behind the force pushing for this event live in person. Because uh, after three years of uh, pandemics, really, we're so hungry for getting together to meet each other. Yes, we had our Bioequity Europe conference uh, earlier this year, and that was our first conference in a few years. And there was a great, great buzz at the event. And uh, we're expecting a similar buzz at the East-West Summit. I know people are excited to get back together and uh, get into some of that hallway chatter that really makes the biotech ecosystem hum. I'd like to uh, bring in Frank now. A highlight of this event is going to be a special report produced by Frank's team at McKinsey and colleagues. Frank, high level, what are some of the key takeaways from your team's analysis? Well, good uh, good evening or good morning, uh, Jeff, and, and uh, the entire Bell Century team and uh, go along. It's uh, great to be invited here. First, I would like to express my thanks again to Bell Century and Bay Helix and the collaboration that we have had, uh, yes, for almost a decade now. I think it's a uh, 
it's been growing, right? We also uh, involved in the bioequity summit uh, that you just mentioned in Europe. So we are very happy now to take this collaboration to North America. I think first, the report itself, what you should know is that for the last nine years, we have produced a China-centric report that we called the bridge to innovation. We basically were telling the story of how China was increasingly becoming a participant of a global biopharma ecosystem and the tremendous progress it has made on many dimensions, but also some of the shortfalls that we could still see in its evolution. This year, the report is very different. This year, the report is actually prepared by a global team in McKinsey, some of my colleagues on the West Coast, some of my colleagues in Europe, and some of us in Asia are working together to produce a report that is not China-centric, that is much more about the global biotech industry, actually, and how it has evolved over the years, and what are some of the challenges it faces going forward and what should be the changes that the um, industry, whether as regulators or others, should consider. Well, a few key messages and the report will go into much more depth into all of that and I think will be made available to all participants uh, at the summit. But first, I think we want to celebrate the uh, tremendous success that biotech has had over the last 20 years or so. Uh, if you think about it, roughly 7,000 biotech companies have been created different corners of, of the world, right? 7,000. If you look at the recent trend on a year-by-year basis, we're basically adding about 300 biotechs, which is almost one per day. So think about it that way. <laughs> Every day in the world, somewhere, whether it's in Cambridge or Shanghai or in Europe, one new biotech comes up. Obviously, not all of them are successful, but in aggregate, a lot of success, right? If you look at the number of therapies that have been brought to market and to patients, we think that over 500 therapies have been actually developed by biotech companies in that period of time, right? And if you look at the top 20 therapies on market today by revenues, 65% of them originated from one of those biotechs, right? We are not discovered by big biopharma, but biotech, 65%, two-thirds. If you look at other metrics, right, the market cap, right, over $500 billion of market cap today for biotechs, right? And if you look at the distribution of that market cap, you have obviously a lot of micro caps still, but you also have over 300 companies worldwide with a market cap of over $1 billion, right? which you could argue is a pretty significant threshold to reach. Right? We also have had many, many deals. right? And if we look back at the last decade, uh, we think that more than 80 deals have been closed in the $1 to $10 billion range. Right? So typically, a big pharma company taking out the biotech. So tremendous value has been created for patients and for shareholders, right? I think it's very clear. And it has become, from a largely US-centric industry, a truly global industry, with in particular the rise of Asia more recently, but also, as we know well, a very strong um, industry in Europe as well. Now, that said, that's all great, but we see real challenges on the horizon for this industry. There's a short-term one and a longer-term one. The short-term one is the financial crisis that we're experiencing that hopefully will be shortly, but nobody has an answer to that, right? And the silver lining is that we continue to see strong private funding actually flowing into um, biotechs. But next to that, we see three more structural challenges. One is herding. Uh, if you look at the data, companies from around the world are all going after the same targets and the same disease, right? And that is fundamentally a challenge, right? Two is, I would say, the concentration of revenues geographically, right? The U.S. market for biotech and biopharma has become increasingly important. We think that if you take the top 15 uh, large biopharma companies, right, uh, the big names of the industry, 53% of their revenues originate from the U.S. market. And that 
proportion has been increasing year after year for the last 10 years, right? And not only that, but there's also a high concentration on a small pool of patients that are increasingly valuable to companies, right? So as companies have focused their efforts on rare disease, immuno-oncology, the value per patient has gone up a lot. And you could argue that this is great for patients, but you could also say that a lot of disease have been overlooked and that there's not enough research coming from biotech into specific diseases like cardiovascular, respiratory, anti-effective, et cetera. And then there's a fragmentation, the point that Dave uh, brought up earlier around geopolitics and how do we actually make sure that biotech companies can become truly global and are supported by regulatory frameworks that enable that. Then the report, and I will cut it now so that we can have more of a discussion, but the report goes then into what could happen next, what is going to drive value for biotech going forward, for example, the rise of platforms, right? the platform era, as we call it, uh, the emergence of AI as a driver of value creation, but also potentially new collaboration models between biotechs around the world. Right. So at the end of the report, we'll have a little bit of forward-looking views on what could be the solutions, but that's broadly speaking what the report is about, right? what the industry has achieved, what are some of the challenges, and what we would like to see change for that um, industry to continue to thrive. Excellent. Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing the report when it comes out. Another thing I'm looking forward to is Simone and her panel. It is the scene setter panel, always one of the highlights of our conferences. Simone, what's the focus? Thanks, Jeff. So the focus, you know, in line with everything else we've been hearing is about measuring the appetite of biotechs and their investors to globalize the value of their innovations and their investments. You know, our survey really tries to take the temperature of companies that are founded in the West or the East, how they are thinking about whether they're thinking about globalization, and if so, how. Um, and actually, I want to throw a question in a minute to Frank and well, in, the, in this. The survey that we have asks what issues they are weighing up as they think about deals or financing, clinical trials, company operations, whether they do this exclusively in their own countries, how much they're thinking about doing this, obviously cross-border. And so, Frank, I know you do these intensive and really great analyses. You talk to a lot of uh, folk as well. So I wanted to ask you, and also, Guilang, you, you talked about the pandemic. Has that reset anything? So, Frank, you let me first with this. You started with a sort of almost every day a new biotech is born, right? <laughs> Uh, are the biotechs that are being born today in this pandemic or post-pandemic era, are they more thinking globally than their predecessors five years ago or 10 years ago, especially the ones in the West? Is that a case that still needs to be made? We all started out by saying patients are relevant globally. So how are you seeing people think about this? Yes, I'm not quite sure, Simon, that the pandemic has really changed the way people think about that. Um, you know, I think obviously the pandemic has been a hurdle for everybody to conduct trade, to meet people, to build trust, to secure funding. That's you know, been a direct impact. But I think fundamentally, if you look at it, very few biotech companies go for globalization. It's a very small minority who actually try that path. It's a very difficult path. It's a very expensive path. And very few have succeeded in doing so. You know, the summit is called East-West Biopharma Summit, but our report is really focused on the biotech industry, right, which is a subset of that, right? We do not really talk about the larger biopharma companies. We, were, we thought it would be more interesting to talk about the, the smaller guys, quote-unquote, who are like really 
you know, de developing and, uh, and discovering a lot of uh, innovative therapies today. But the reality is that many of them end up being taken over by larger biopharma companies, and very few really try to go global. The ones who stay independent often keep a very you know, US-centric or Eurocentric footprint. We think there's a missed opportunity there, right? There is a potentiality for companies to start to work together on a global basis between you know, mid to small size companies, right? There is no other means to do that, right? And certainly, and in particular, maybe pandemic has taught us, like we have here today, that we can collaborate around the world much more effectively by, by uh, virtual means. Uh, so we, we hope, certainly, that there will be more collaborations going forward. Uh, but as of today, I would I would say that few companies are traveling that path. And let's see if that changes in the coming years. Yeah, I mean, you know, we will have a couple of sessions at the uh, East-West Summit that are essentially case studies of companies that are working together to globalize. For instance, we'll have a great case study of the uh, Beijing-Novartis deal. We also have another case study of Xilab and Argenics. So we will have some discussion about how those deals came about and, and how they managed to continue to get benefit even after the deal as they work together. Yeah, I think I would say there is an increased awareness by companies in Europe and North America that there's actually value to be, to be realized for them and for their pipeline and portfolio by tapping into the Asia potential, right? in particular the China one. So we have increasingly discussions with companies in US and Europe who are looking for partners in China. On the other side, many Chinese biotech companies are looking for partners in Europe and the US to bring as well their discoveries. So the, the two-way flow of data information, uh, capital uh, is really growing, right? That's a bridge between East and West that is uh, getting hopefully more solid. We'll see what uh, we get. One of the other things about that bridge, I think, is as China matured and, and along with it, other parts of Asia, um, there's some new business models. They've been percolating in the background, but now they're really way more important to actually understand what kinds of business models there are for companies that facilitate the ability to do, for example, multi-regional clinical trials or to facilitate cross-border financing. And that's, a, that's not a new form of company, but it's become way more important as the ability to monetize your assets really requires you, requires you, not, it's not an option. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that that's uh, really is, uh, you know, people seeing the, the need. It's not just we're seeing the trend where people try to go global, have more cross-border collaborations. For example, in Aplomics, our clinical trial consists of half a patient from China and another half a patient from the U.S. And when we go interact with FDA, you know, FDA say, yeah, that's probably uh, looking a good ratio where we could demonstrate the clinical benefit from it. And also the two-way collaborations where we bring innovations in the U.S. to China, where we also have a phase three molecule now undergoing as a part of the global clinical trial, contributing the patient data from the China side, as well, the collaborations where we would bring the innovation in China to the U.S. and to Europe. I think it goes both ways. And as Dave said correctly, you know, people are looking into new business models where not a just typical, say, upfront payment, some milestone payment or royalty type, you know, very 
cookie cutter type of a business model, but more creative, including forming a, a JV or start have a multi-asset collaborations. You know, I've seen uh, all kinds of things going on. But I think mentally, globalization is almost like a must-to-do, you know, in all my friends of mine as a C-level or CEO. It's a strategy they have to adopt because they cannot only do things in China, only stay in the U.S. to some small part. I mean, you just have to overcome all the hurdles that uh, we're currently facing. And I've been traveled four times, quarantined four times uh, already <laughs> to China, which is uh, not easy time to pass. But, uh, you know, I did it and I still felt that it's worthwhile, the trips. Excellent. Well, this is getting me excited for some of those panels that are coming up at the East-West Summit. With the little bit of time that we have left, I'd, I'd just like to bring in Josh again to tell us a little bit about who some of the other KOLs who will be on the program and what they bring to the globalization narrative that we've been discussing. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I think we have a really great lineup of speakers this year. Guilian was talking about multi-regional clinical trials, so we'll have his colleague, Peony Yu, uh, CMO, is going to be on our MRCT session. I think that'll be a really good session that's run by uh, Barry Murphy of Novatech, has a, a really great group of CMOs on that panel. We also have a really good representation from U.S. biopharma execs this year. We have John Lepore, head of research for GSK. We have David Reese head of R&D for Amgen. We have Jeff Calcagno, uh, head of J-Labs in the Bay Area. And then we also have a great collection of China and Asia biotech executives. So we have Steve Yang of Wuxi, uh, Lai Wang, head of R&D for Beijing. We have Joan Chen, a former CEO of IMAP, who just launched a new co called Nushen Therapeutics, which is in the neurological disorder space. I think she'll have some interesting points to, to share with the audience. And then also we have a really, really strong group of investors on the program this year. So we have Kieran Reddy of Blackstone, Simeon George of SR1, Judith Lee of LAVs, Shirley Chu of Lightspeed Venture Partners, Stella Shu of Quan Capital, Chris Carpenter of Sofanova Investors. So just a really, really strong group of investors who are going to share their experiences in the cross-border space. I'm sure they'll also have a lot of insights to share also about the bear market and what companies need to do to prepare, hopefully, for a better 2023. I think this is a, an event that hopefully will have folks wanting to attend in person, but we also do have the ability to attend digitally as well. So there are full digital passes for those who can't make it to the Bay Area. But if you can make it out, please come out and join us. You know, We'll have one-to-one -one meetings. We'll have networking, and then a great program, which also includes more than 40 presenting companies that'll be presenting that were selected by Simone and the editorial team. So hope everyone can join us. Check out our website, biocenturyeastwest.com for more information and hope to see everyone in Redwood City next month. Yep. And we, we look forward to continuing the discussion uh, starting November 14th with the uh, opening reception. And as Josh said, BiocenturyEastWest.com. Still time to register. We look forward to seeing you there or having you join us in Shanghai. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Thank Jeff. You. Thank you.
All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.